Before we get started today, I'd like to talk about our Buy Me A Coffee memberships. You can offer one to five coffees to our staff every month, and that gets you exclusive benefits like special newsletters, behind-the-scenes content, the ability to ask us questions directly, as well as a special shout-out here on our podcast. Today, I want to thank our members on Buy Me A Coffee, Anderson da Silva, Kat Kramer, Fra, Peter Suffering, and Anna Lund. The list has been growing, and we thank you all very, very much. You too could join them and support independent journalism. Head to Buy Me A Coffee and subscribe, and starting next week, you can hear your name on Explaining Brazil. If you cannot support us on a monthly basis, you can still tip us a coffee to give us the energy we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America. Just head to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report to find out more. On June the 5th, a Sunday, British journalist Dom Phillips and indigenous expert Bruno Pereira set off on the final leg of a research trip outside the Valle do Javari Indigenous Reserve in the western Brazilian Amazon. Their last port of call was the fishing village of São Rafael on the Itaquaí River, from where they would take a two to three hour boat trip downriver to the city of Atalaya do Norte and then head home. But the two men have not been seen since. Dom is a freelance journalist who is shining a light, if you like, on a very politically sensitive issue in Brazil um, involving the struggles of the indigenous people there um, against deforestation. We recorded this podcast on the evening of June the 14th at the end of the 10th day of searches with no sign of Dom or Bruno or their boat. Last Sunday, members of the fire brigade came across personal items belonging to the two men, including clothes, Bruno's photo ID, and Dom's backpack. A suspect is in custody, accused of being involved in their disappearance. But the question on the lips of the man's families, friends, colleagues, and society as a whole remains the same. Where are Dom and Bruno? My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Ewan Marshall, hello. Hi, Gustavo. Ewan, you have been covering the disappearance of Dom Phillips and Bruno Pereira for the Brazilian Report, and you are acquainted with both men. So I know this story has hit quite close to home for you, and I do thank you for the work you have been doing in following the case. I know certainly it has not been easy. So just to give us a bit of background, many of our listeners may well know of Dom Phillips' work as a correspondent for The Guardian and for other outlets, but tell us a bit about who he is beyond his articles, and particularly, who is Bruno Pereira, who many might not know? 
Uh, well, first of all, uh, Bruno Pereira, he is what you would call in Brazil an indigenista, which is essentially an indigenous expert, um, someone who is well-versed in dealing with indigenous communities and their demands and helping to keep them safe. And Bruno is a public servant. Um, he's on leave at the moment from the Indig Brazilian Indigenous Foundation, FONAI. And he basically operates in and around what's called the Vale do Javari Indigenous Reserve, um, which is this massive, massive reserve right to the westernmost point of Brazil in the Amazon. And I'd hazard a guess to say that Bruno probably knows that area better than any uh, non-Indigenous person. Um, he has essentially made it his life's work to protect the Indigenous communities in that region uh, which means kind of driving out these predatory outside interests, like trespassers, things like that. So he works closely with the local people, kind of defenders of the forest, and he essentially teaches them how to report these crimes to the authorities. He teaches them certain, you know, new technologies like, you know, walkie-talkies, radios and drones, things like that. And you'd say that Bruno is probably among the most respected indigenistas of his generation. And uh, Dom, Dom Phillips, as you said, uh, he's a long-time contributor to The Guardian and uh, quite well-known here in Brazil uh, for his work, for his correspondency work. And, you know, he's just a, a brave, uh, brave, kind and, you know, very caring and helpful journalist, um, really one of the one of the best ones out here. And Dom and Bruno, they've worked together for years. Uh, they, For a long time, they've been helping to tell the story of Brazil's Amazon, especially in the Valle do Javari. And they've been on several trips there together before. And on this particular trip, they were there on research for Dom's upcoming book, which was going to be about the kind of conservation of the Amazon, like looking at what types of conservation work and what kinds don't. Now, as you said, the Vale do Javadi Reserve is massive, the size of Portugal or Austria, and it is not straightforward to move around, right? I mean, it is a major logistical endeavor there. Well, you know, as you said, it's basically it's tucked into this corner um, to the very to the very west of of, of Brazil and on the border with Peru and Colombia. So around there, there's, you know, there's no, there's no highways. Um, you know, there are some roads, but essentially what you're doing is you're traveling around via rivers. Um, there are some, obviously some principal rivers, which are, you know, you would say maybe highways of the, of the, of a kind of water um, variety, because they're very kind of broad and very deep. And, you know, they, they go from, you know, one big city to another. But for places like the Valley de Javari, for example, the way you get around is by these really kind of tight, meandering rivers, um, such as the one where uh, Bruno and uh, Dom were last seen in. So this is like the the landscape changes constantly, you know, like as it rains, the water levels will go up. So some parts, you know, some of these little estuaries and some of these little offshoots of the river will become flooded and in other times they will be dry. So, you know, it's essentially just this network of rivers and canals and that sort of thing, which, you know, makes it makes it very difficult to traverse around. And but that's why 
that's why Bruno was, you know, that's that's why he was in that area because he he knows it so well. Um, he knows all of these permutations as far as you know water levels and rivers and all that sort of thing. You have been covering this case since the news broke. Could you give us a little bit more background as to what we do know at this moment and what the experience of reporting on it has been like? Well, so beyond what you mentioned already at the start of the show, um, essentially on the day that that news broke, uh, I, I sought to kind of quickly get in touch with um, with sources uh, I have in Atalaya do Norge, which is the town uh, closest to where they where they disappeared, um, particularly sources from the Valle do Javari um, Union of Indigenous Communities, a group known as Onivaja. So essentially what we know at this point is kind of piecing together all of this different information from different eyewitness accounts, from, you know, different official sources and, you know, from different indigenous patrols who are operating in this area. So we have Dom and Bruno arriving in the region on Friday. Uh, so that's two days before the appearance. And then on Saturday... Uh, which is obviously one day before the disappearance, they went to visit uh, a kind of indigenous patrol surveillance group in a location called Lago do Jaburu. And when they were there, uh, they were threatened by three armed men, three armed fishermen. And one of these men was Amarildo da Costa de Oliveira, or nicknamed Pelado, and he is currently in custody in connection with the disappearance of the two men. And then the next morning, so after they've been after they've been threatened on Saturday, on Sunday morning they set off for Atalaya do Norte. And just before they reach the town, they make a scheduled stop off in a fishing community of São Rafael uh, because Bruno had arranged to speak to the local community leader, a, a guy named Shohasco, who is actually Pilado's uncle. So they turn up uh, around, I believe it's around 4 a.m. In, in the morning on Sunday and Shohasco doesn't show. Um, he doesn't turn up for their conversation and Bruno and Dom decide to move on head for Atalaya, uh, leaving at around six in the morning. So Bruno had agreed to meet his indigenista colleague Orlando Pozuelo at eight o'clock in the morning in Atalaya do Norte. Um, that is essentially the region where, from Atalaya do Norte, Bruno would go back to Manaus, which is the biggest uh, city in Brazil's north, and Dom would head back to his home in Salvador in the northeast of Brazil. So this is the end of their trip. But Orlando's waiting there at 8 a.m. Um, he waits for two hours, apparently, and the men never show. Um, eyewitnesses from the fishing community in San Rafael say that they saw this Pelado man's boat, uh, sorry, boat, uh, pursuing the two men at high speed uh, shortly after they left. And when Orlando realized that, you know, they hadn't turned up, he was the one who raised the alarm. Um, he alerted Univaja and said, you know, Dom and Bruno aren't here, and they sent out these two separate search teams on Sunday, one just after lunch and then another one more kind of around four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon. And after they found nothing, um, the two men were reported missing officially on Monday morning. And 
yeah, it's, I mean, since then, it's just, it's been, it's been a real challenge, I think, for everyone, um, journalists who are in Atalaya do Norge or not in Atalaya do Norge, because kind of communication, not only, you know, we said earlier about the, the kind of the infrastructure, the travel transport infrastructure, you know, getting around is extremely difficult, but also the communication infrastructure in Atalaya do Norge and the region of the Valle do Javari is extremely difficult. Um, the internet signal will only exist in the town of Atalaya do Norge, and even then it's not very good. And so, you know, your maybe your sources, important sources, or anyone involved with the search teams, they will they will spend long periods of the day completely incommunicado because um, they'll go out to the field and there'll be no way to get in touch with them. And, of course, the official offices, you know, places like police stations, places like the mayor's office, you know, they all rely on landline telephones. And in this kind of remote part of the Amazon, these phone lines are typically, you know, they're out of use for most of the day, you know, a little bit of rain or a little bit of wind and they're completely unusable. So it has really been a huge challenge, I think, for everyone just to try and piece all of this together. Now, as you mentioned, the Valle do Javadi Reserve there, uh, which is the setting of this disappearance, you've talked about the issues with internet and phone lines, but this really is as remote as it gets, right? The place, as we mentioned, is the size of Portugal, full of almost completely untouched forests. What makes that a place Dom would want to research for his book? Well, I mean, as we've mentioned, it's it's a massive area of the Amazon forest. I mean, it's, it's the second largest uh, recognized indigenous reserve in Brazil. And so in there, you've got at least 26 different indigenous ethnicities that are living. And 19 of them are what we call isolated communities, which are communities which have been kind of recently contacted um, by the government, but have chosen to kind of remain outside of society. And that means that the government then has a duty to protect um, their choice to remain outside of society and protect the community as a whole. And it's believed that, you know, there might be many more uncontacted communities in that reserve because it's just so big and so much of it is, has not really been properly explored yet. Um, so that alone obviously makes the, uh, a kind of an interesting place to hear more about and tell the story of. But what really kind of makes it more fascinating is that the Valle do Javari is kind of, it's, it's a depiction of the way that Brazil um, as a state has kind of disregarded in its role to protect indigenous people. Because this is a place where the state is almost completely non-existent. Um, the presence of, of, of the government and security forces is minimal um, and the region as a result has basically just been infested with crime. And what kinds of crime are we talking about here? Well, I think the one that uh, hangs above everything else uh, in the region is drugs uh, because as we've mentioned already, the Valle do Javari is located right on the western end of Brazil. So it borders, it directly borders Peru and is very close to the border with Colombia. So, and these obviously are, are two major drug producing co countries. So on the western side of the indigenous reserve, um, which is where it borders Peru on the Javari River, 
the drugs and arms trafficking is is a huge issue there um, because that river just flows right upside, right up the west side of the Indigenous Reserve and then goes right into the Amazon River. And from there, from the Amazon River, the products can be taken to, you know, the major cities of Manaus or Belém. And from there, they can either be sent down to, you know, Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, or they can be sent onto the big ports in the northeast, at Fortaleza, Natal, and, you know, that's where these drugs are then sent off to Europe. But as well as the kind of the major drug trafficking issue on the southern edge of the reserve, uh, the problem there is um, gold mining and logging, essentially deforestation and... Um, and kind of the destruction of the of the natural habitat on that kind of southern fringe of the Valley of Javari, and that is uh, it's a particularly harmful um, form of crime in terms of uh, local indigenous populations, because not only does that involve kind of trespassing and invading lands, but it also involves the poisoning of rivers um, and the violence against indigenous communities, which are trying to kind of ward these ward these invaders away so that's a particularly harmful type of crime um, but then probably the main issue at the moment is to the north and right in the center of the reserve um, there is a massive problem with the crime of illegal fishing and poaching and the illegal fishing and poaching that's what links to the disappearance of Dom and Bruno right yeah, so this is it's a particularly harmful thing for the indigenous uh, the indigenous territory because um, not only you know I've mentioned about the drugs and the, and the and the illegal gold mining, a lot of that happens on the fringes of the indigenous territory, but the illegal fishing and the poaching cuts right into the heart. Um, it goes right through the right through the main rivers that lead in to the indigenous lands, and as you know, it has a direct effect on the communities that live there. So Bruno, Bruno Pereira, he has been focusing on curbing those crimes of illegal fishing and poaching um, for the longest time. Because obviously on a protected indigenous land, non-indigenous people are not allowed by law to, uh, to fish in the rivers or obviously hunt any animals. So essentially the, the kind of the MO of these poachers and uh, fishermen is that they will sneak into the the indigenous area, the indigenous territory as a proper, and they will come back with, you know, boats full of animals and fish and, you know, river turtles, which they then transport to to sell um, at the Brazil's triple border with Peru and Colombia and, you know, butchers and restaurants or these stores which sell kind of you know ornamental um, turtle shells or maybe even jaguar pelts and things like that and so these shops on the triple border they are technically they are legitimate businesses but they're often run by organized crime groups um, so and a lot of this illegally obtained meat you know or or the pelts or the you know turtle eggs they're worth a lot of money, and so they're very easy for the organized crime groups to just launder their money through these shops, um, either within Brazil's borders or just across the border in Colombia, Peru. 
So now Bruno has basically, he's been on this for some time. Uh, he's been investigating these groups and he's been working hard with local indigenous people to kind of help them push back against these uh, against these illegal organisations. And essentially what he's been doing is he works with these indigenous patrol groups who they go into the rainforest they look for these invaders, they look for these fishermen, they look for these poachers, and when they find them, they will seize all the things that they have fished or the things that they have poached, and they'll take you know, their equipment, their weapons, sometimes take their boats and things like that. So as you can imagine, you know, this work has earned uh, Boruno quite a lot of enemies. Um, and you know, there, there is precedent for violence in the region. Um, when you're talking about combating this 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 scheme of illegal fishing and, and poaching, because uh, just as recently as uh, 2019, one of Bruno's colleagues, uh, a man named Maxiel Pereira, who worked for Funai, he was involved in a massive uh, bust of um, illegal fishermen and illegal poachers. They seized a huge amount of animals which had been illegally killed and brought outside of the indigenous territory. And not long afterwards, Maxiel was executed uh, in front of his wife and his stepdaughter um, in broad daylight uh, with two shots to the head for his involvement in that particular operation. Yeah, I mean, there are multiple notorious cases of people killed in the Amazon region for defending the interests of the forest. I mean, just on the top of my head, I remember Chico Mendes, a former lawmaker, or Sister Dorothy Stang, who in 2005 was murdered for her efforts on behalf of the poor and the environment. Yeah, I mean, these are emblematic crimes. Um, but the problem is, is that as much commotion as they caused, uh, obviously the death of Chico Menges and of Dorothy Stang and even of Maxiel Pereira a few years ago, as much commotion as they caused, they still, uh, the crimes weren't properly solved. Um, you know, we saw perhaps some people facing some punishment for, you know, being the man behind the trigger, but the people who you know, the interests who were behind these assassinations have never really been brought to justice. Um, and so that is why, you know, such a case with with, with Bruno Pereira and, and, and Dom Phillips definitely brings up uh, certain concerns as to, you know, hopefully we can find out what happened to them. If they were forcibly disappeared, we can find out who, who was responsible. Now, it's astonishing to think that such an area, a near-verging piece of the Amazon rainforest, full of indigenous groups, uncontacted groups, by the way, could be affected by so many different types of crime. Is this a new phenomenon? Uh, because many people are blaming the government and President Jair Bolsonaro for what happened, for the lawlessness in remote areas of the Amazon. Now, why would they do that? Why would the government be held accountable for in the eyes of so many people well i think the the important thing to note is that the you know the the drug passage that i was explaining before you know with the where you would have drugs taken through the javari river and then onto the the amazonas river that has been active for decades um it 
forms part of something which is known in Brazil as the Solimões route, uh, which is a, a reference to the Solimões River, which is the name that the Amazon River gets at its upper parts. And, you know, many of the major South American drug gangs and cartels have a stake in this. And, you know, that's that's something that we've talked about in the past um, in previous episodes of this podcast and also uh, articles on our website, the Brazilian, Brazilian Report. And um, we will link to all of that, I'm sure, in the show notes. But what is new now is just the extent of this lawlessness. Um, I think in the past, in Brazil's history, Brazil has only really done well against environmental crimes when they carry fines and punishments. Um, the best deterrent for this sort of thing, you know, for someone who thinks about, you know, fishing um, where they're not meant to, or poaching a jaguar, or, you know, cutting down a bit of rainforest, the best deterrent for these people is if they think that there's a chance that they're going to be caught and severely punished. And that just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. We've just seen uh, Brazil's oversight, and sorry, environmental oversight agencies just completely depleted over the years. The idea, as Bolsonaro said in his, in his campaign in 2018, was that he wants to end what he calls the industry of fines um, related to environmental crimes. And so it basically means that I mean, let's remember the president himself was fined for illegal fishing before he was elected to the highest office in the land. Exactly. Um, and, you know, these people in this region are just going to continue doing that if they feel that, they've, that there's someone in the president's office who, you know, is not willing to prosecute them, is not willing to punish them. Um, that in a place, in sorry, in the most remote places of Brazil, is the biggest deterrent um, because these people are needy. You know, the people who are involved in the in the illegal fishing. It's not as if um, they are, you know, these sophisticated crime bosses who have been doing this for all of their lives. You know, like no, they're they're quite usually typically quite poor people who essentially just need to put food on the table, and this provides them an option um, to do that to get some quick money, and so they wouldn't do it. I imagine, if they were going to be hit with massive fines or potential criminal punishments. So that has been the main difference. I mean, the government could also engage in projects for sustainable development, offering a financial lifeline to these people that does not depend on the destruction of the forests. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you explaining how watchdogs have been depleted in Brazil. Yeah, um, I mean, we could just take as a as a kind of basic example the the Valley do Javari itself. Um, the only way at the moment into the Valley do Javari is through the bottom of the Itaquai River, which there there is meant to be a kind of guard post. There's meant to be a permanent guard post belonging to the uh, the Brazilian Indigenous Foundation, uh, FONAI, as we mentioned before. And that is the only line of defense at the moment between um, all these predatory uh, interests and the indigenous reserve itself. So, I mean, there's really not much going on in terms of the protection um, of these lands. And I mean, if we look at, away from FONAI, if we look at Brazil's environmental agency, IBAMA, 
the numbers tell us that the number of temporary workers uh, in the agency has increased sixfold between 2019 and 2022. So that's since Jair Bolsonaro was coming to office. And the thing there, obviously, is that, you know, when you have temp workers, you know, because of the nature of that type of employment, they are not as qualified and they're not as prepared um, to provide the same service as, you know, maybe a kind of career public servant would. And the temp workers are essentially a quick fix, you know, that can kind of, they can help out until a definitive solution is found. Um, but that's not that's not what we've seen them used as under the Bolsonaro government. And, you know, Bruno has said this uh, before he before he disappeared. Um, he's complained that in the case of the Valle do Javari and Amazon, uh, sorry, and the Amazon as a whole, that he's never seen it as bad as it is now, um, which is which is quite shocking to hear and um, quite tragic, the fact that then he, he disappeared shortly afterwards. And there's another report recently uh, by news website Metropolis, uh, which is quite shocking, we found, um, claiming that the Bolsonaro administration removed all firearms from Obama postings in the Valle do Javari Reserve. So these are weapons which are used for kind of the security of public servants and the security of the indigenous people. You know, this is this is what is keeping people out of the indigenous reserve. And, you know, now these places have been have been removed for their firearms. And so that part is quite ironic because, you know, the Bolsonaro administration, as a rule, has been kind of quite dedicated to the idea of, you know, giving increased access to firearms for Brazilians. You know, there's lots of pieces of legislation to kind of lift these gun control regulations. But, you know, curiously enough, that doesn't seem to apply um, to public servants who are tasked with enforcing environmental laws in some of the most remote parts of Brazil. Even the government has come under fire for the way it has handled the search operations. Uh, we always hear on movies or TV shows that the first hours after someone is reported missing are the most crucial ones, but the government has majorly fumbled the ball. They're reported missing on Monday morning, um, and that creates this massive national commotion. But the only real mobilization we saw from kind of security forces, you know, the federal police and the military, came on Wednesday. And so that's when they'd already been missing for over 72 hours. Um, so, you know, if the first hours are crucial, then, you know, that's that's a huge, um, that's a huge uh, lapse in judgment, I would say. But since the start, the ones who have been really leading these searches have been these local indigenous patrols that I've been talking about during this episode, uh, particularly those from uh, Onivaja, and also a small group of these uh, local military police officers. There's just six of them, but they have been involved from the start every day, uh, extremely dedicated uh, in trying to find uh, Dom and Bruno. Now, there was a bizarre bit of confusion on Monday, June the 13th, when Don's family went to the press saying that they had been informed that two bodies were found in the area, and then that turned out not to be the case. Ewan, what the hell happened there? I mean, yeah, this, this kind of confused everyone, I think, uh, involved with the case, because, so this was on Monday morning, um, Dom's family in the UK were contacted by a liaison officer from the Brazilian embassy in London. 
So yeah, Dom's family in the UK have uh, reportedly been in kind of semi-regular contact with the with the Brazilian embassy. But the call that they get on Monday morning says that uh, the search teams have found two bodies and that they are likely to be the bodies of Dom and Bruno. And so quickly, very quickly, Dom's brother-in-law um, calls uh, Alessandra, Dom's wife here in Brazil, and she speaks to the press. Uh, she tells the press what she's heard. And so I think that for us personally, covering this case, uh, every new piece of information that comes out, we've always sought to kind of confirm it um, with our sources on the ground in Atalaya do Norte. Uh, because as we've explained before, you know, some of the communication can be quite difficult. So we always want to try and confirm things. As soon as I hear this story, I send messages to the people on the ground. And it's about seven o'clock in the morning in Amazonas time. So no one there is out in the fields and no one is searching at that particular time. And the people who I'm speaking to had accompanied the searches on Sunday night. So they were just bemused saying that, no, like we haven't found any bodies. I don't know where this is coming from. Um, we have been in close contact with the search teams and they haven't told us anything about that. And there are no bodies to be found. And the federal police quickly came out with a statement confirming that, that they had never... Uh, found any bodies um, in their search in the search operations on Sunday or on Monday, and it became clear that what had happened is that in the information relayed to the Brazilian embassy in London, there seemed to be some you know horrendous mix-up that they had been told that there were bodies found, when in fact the federal police now in charge of the investigation have never said anything to that extent. Um, so you can imagine just how horrible um, that whole experience was for Dom's family uh, and Bruno's family here in Brazil, it's just to be given that kind of you know that kind of news and then that kind of extra hope of um, the fact that they didn't find bodies. You know, it's just really, really, really uh, unforgivable. At this stage, is there any hope left of finding Dom and Bruno alive or at all? Um, finding them alive, I think, is obviously it's it's, it's very difficult. Um, a lot of days have passed uh, since they disappeared, and it's very difficult to to survive in uh, in a, such a remote region as that. But until we know um, what happened to them, obviously uh, there is some uh, bit of hope remaining. But you know that hope is decreasing every day. And yeah, the search teams are continuing their job and hopefully uh, we can get some answers soon. Ewan Marshall is an editor of The Brazilian Report. Ewan, thank you as always for joining us. And I know this episode was particularly difficult for you. Thanks, Gustavo. If you like explaining Brazil, please drop us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second and it will help more people find out about this show. Or even better, you can sign up to The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, then you can give us some extra support by filling up our coffee mugs with donations on Buy Me A Coffee. We have a memberships program there with exclusive perks like behind-the-scenes content, and you get to see how the sausage is made and exclusive newsletters. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. 
See you next week.